This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, I have one of the best scholars in the game, period, point blank. Her name is Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson, Assistant Professor in the Department of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Johnson is with us to discuss her blockbuster first book. Wicked Flesh, Black Women, Intimacy, and Freedom in the Atlantic World, published by our friends at the University of Pennsylvania Press this year in 2020. I am excited to chat with Dr. Johnson about the origins of the project, how she transitioned from grad school into early career status, Black historical traditions, and also the core, obviously, of Wicked Flesh but also why Dr. Johnson believes that Black New Orleans is the center of the world. Enjoy, family. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Johnson. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Definitely excited to have you. Definitely excited to have you. And so um, can you talk to us about the Genesis story of Wicked Flesh for us? Sure. So I began um, traveling to New Orleans in uh, 1999, uh, and I began researching New Orleans history as a Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow at Washington University, uh, which says something about how important these fellowships are. They give undergraduate students the opportunity to do independent research. Um, they introduce them to the life of the mind, and they are geared towards um, students who are historically underrepresented um, in the academy, um, uh, Black, Latinx, um, and Indigenous students in particular. Uh, and so uh, it became really clear early on in my, um, in my visits to New Orleans, um, which I completely fell in love with, which is not a feeling that is uncommon for those who have experienced the city in any kind of way, that New Orleans is a city, a site, and a history of Um, seemingly profound contradictions. So it's um, part of the United States, but is um, spoken of as the northernmost point of the Caribbean. It is, is because it's part of the United States, it's presumably part of the um, British North American mainland history and legacy, but it was also part of the Spanish empire for a significant um, number of years. It was part of, um, it was founded by the French, um, and so it's uh, French culture is also very much part of um, New Orleans history and, and cultural memory and, um, and understanding of, of, of politics in itself. And um, it's also a site that uh, has um, historically had 
um, a lot of attention because of the significant number of free people of African descent um, who made their home there, who got secured their freedom from French, Spanish, and um, American slave owners. Um, and at the same time, it was also during the antebellum era, the busiest slave market um, in the United States, um, the, spa- the market in which um, enslaved um, black people were traded from places like Baltimore um, and all across the um, the upper um, the upper South and to go to, to New Orleans and then um, further into the deep South. So um, it's this space that's that has all of these um, all, all of these 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 points of connection that seem like they shouldn't actually connect. And at the heart of them, um, at the heart of why they do connect, um, uh, are Black women, African women and women African descent. Um, and so uh, exploring the city, getting to know um, the people of the city, um, getting to know um, Black women who are part of community organizations, who are part of Black sororities, who are professors and teachers at the HBCUs like Dillard and Xavier, who are teaching at at the uh, predominantly white institutions like Tulane, who are um, working at uh, at restaurants and museums and cultural centers and and bars, and um, who are you know dancing for for dancing for a jazz bands, playing in jazz bands. Like black women are so central to the cultural and political vanguard of the city, uh, and they that presence and that. Um, that kind of audacious, audacious freedom that they exhibited um, was not only not necessarily part of the history as it was written, but also wasn't part of how we were understanding what these contradictions meant. And for me, thinking about the presence and the, the activities and the actions and the agency of Black women um, led me to um, thinking differently about freedom in and of itself. Uh, at the heart of thinking about uh, African women and women of African descent in this earlier era, we often always, um, as historians, come to questions of reproduction, questions of partisequitive ventrum, uh, questions of intimate violence. And these are also the questions that preoccupied me in thinking about uh, what position um, enslaved African women had when they arrived at um, along the Gulf Coast. Uh, but I also uh, was... Uh, fascinated by and found it really important to not just think through um, the violence, but also think about the ways that intimacy and kinship become these uh, mechanisms for uh, Black women to secure freedom and also to question and challenge what that freedom means. And so in the book, um, this book is a story of African women who are coming primarily from um, the Senegal. Uh, so this story follows a route that goes from Senegal to the Caribbean to the Gulf Coast and is trying to capture the ways that freedom as we understand it in the new world, A, we can't possibly understand it without capturing and, and trying to understand the way that um, African women and women of African descent understood what freedom was. And if we do that, that actually challenges us to think challenges us to think differently about freedom, its genesis, and what that word even means. Um, in thinking about the ways that uh, that Black women in New Orleans create these rich, dense, complicated uh, spaces for their own safety, their security, their autonomy, and um, for them to thrive, um, and to think about the, all the different um, complicated uh, constellations of that thriving. 
uh, it forces us to move across the Atlantic, it forced me at least to move across the Atlantic. Uh, and it forced me to pull back from a meaning of freedom that rooted itself, for slavery historians at least, in the product of the Manumission Act. Like, did you sign and did you get free or did you not? And instead think more expansively about what are the ways that um, freedom could be lived, that freedom could be challenged, that freedom is a word that, um, that got its very meaning from the actions that um, the African women took in challenging slave owners, colonial administrators um, on the um, Senegal side, as well as on the, um, on the American side. And I, the last thing I'll say about that is that um, it was important. This story was, the root of this story was important because of the way that um, the, the slave trade from um, Senegambia in particular has such a huge force in a particular moment in the Gulf Coast history, but it's only one leg of, of many stories that I think could be told. I think a story of Black women coming from Benin could be told, a story of Black women coming from Congo Angola could be told, a story of, um, of the Gulf Coast and its relationship um, more specifically in the Caribbean could be told. I think there are many, many stories that actually Black women have to tell who end up in this this space that is New Orleans. So I talk about it as New Orleans Atlantic world, and I situate this book in its relationship to Senegambia, because I think that that's a huge force in an early era. But it's not, uh, it's not the only story. And um, there are many ways that, uh, that even in not, in not being the only story, there are the strategies and the, the, the actions that these women take and their relationship to the rise of a slaveholding empire. I think we actually can see very interesting parallels in, in, um, in other places as well. Amen. Amen. And also something I noticed too, looking at um, your book acknowledgements and looking throughout the book, um, you, you were also trained by the late great historian, uh, Dr. Ira Berlin, during your doctoral studies at the University of Maryland College Park. What does Dr. Berlin mean to you, especially with your first monograph out into the world? So um, Ira Berlin, um, means so much to me and so much to those of us who do histories of slavery. It was it was honestly a a profound honor to work with him. I wish he was here to see uh, this book in hand. Um, I would have loved for him um, to see that. I know he's looking down and hopefully is is proud of the work and probably has critiques because you know that's what <laughs> Ira had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was amazing. Like Ira was one of the most generous and most committed um, scholars that I have had the pleasure of working with. He um, and these are things that, like, as a graduate student, you, you know, I feel like I, 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 I took them for granted. And then um, and then I talked to other graduate students later on, like, and then as a professor, I was like, oh, your advisor wasn't in his office all the time, just open door, ready to chat, wondering what I had written, ready to line edit, <laughs> literally page by page. <laughs> um, wow. And, wow. Uh, and everybody does not have that. And he was extraordinarily committed to the work, extraordinarily committed to the research, to rigor, to what are the ways that this work is, um, any of the work that any of his advisees were doing um, could make a significant impact in the question of Black life in the Americas and the questions of freedom. Um, and, you know, he just really, you know, he had our backs and and that was uh, that was a really beautiful thing. And so so it was, it was really powerful and really meaningful to work with him. Um, it took me 
um, some time to realize how um, foundational his formulation of society with slaves and slave societies was in the field. I mean, if anything, even more so today, how important the, the concept of Atlantic Creoles was um, in the field in the moment when he introduced it, um, the time space in American slavery. Um, th- there's so much that he offered as a way of for us to think about the complexity of the making of the Atlantic world and the Atlantic African diaspora. And I certainly use some of that um, in my work, Society with Slaves and Slave Societies, I still find to be a very important and useful formulation. Um, and I, I do describe the Gulf Coast at different points at, following that, um, that uh, analysis as going from you know, a society with slaves to a slave society very briefly, destroyed by the, uh, the Natchez Revolt. Um, and then um, returning to a, a kind of society with slaves afterwards. Um, and Atlantic Creoles is um, a formulation that the book is also very much engaged with. Uh, one of the ways that uh, the Signars, for example, on the um, Senegambian side, um, one of the ways that I talk about them are as um, Atlantic Creoles and as challenging in some ways and taking up his formulation, but in a gendered framework. You know, I think one of the things about Atlantic Creoles as a framework is that it was um, masculine. It was about these mm-hmm. um, men who are circulating, who are who can be sailors, who can end up in these different slaveholding societies and navigate them as craftsmen or as um, as um, you know potential not equal equals but potential parity with um, Europeans who are encountering them, who can surprise Europeans with their cosmopolitanness. And there are some important gendered elements that allow that kind of um, privileged position um, to those men. And that's a weird word to say in a moment of enslavement, because these are still um, people of African descent who are subjects to the precarities of the Atlantic world. But even within that, for African women and women of African descent, the stakes are ever so much higher. And that's one of the things that I hoped to you know, add complexity to, particularly with the first half of the book where I talk so much about Senegal and women who are navigating these multiple layers of patriarchal societies, of um, European and African men who have their own ideas about what role these women should play and the ways that they too have to figure out, okay, how do I find safety and security? How do I navigate these multiple linguistic um, regimes? How do I navigate these multiple trading and economic regimes and the demands and the expectations of me as a hostess as a trader, as a, a female slave owner, as someone who is, you know, understood by the French to be free, understood, um, and that freedom, quote unquote, freedom meaning many different things in an African um, context. So, um, so I'm hoping that he um, he likes the challenge, <laughs> and I'm also hoping mm-hmm. it can be. <laughs> I'm also hoping it can be useful to those of us who are really interested in in, in taking gender and gender frameworks seriously. That was just like. obviously we can't see each other right now but i'm gonna let you know i'm shaking my head like oh my gosh like that you you're adding so much to our understanding of atlantic creoles especially as someone reading for exams and thinking about you know what are ways that we can use these frameworks but then right what are what what's left over what haven't we you know, unfurled yet from from a framework like Atlantic Creoles. And so I just really, I really appreciate that too. And um, I also think that, you know, Dr. Berlin, you know, is probably taking notes up there in heaven, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> shoot, I, right, man, I should, 
I, I see you, Dr. Johnson. I see you or whatever, you know, whatever he would call you uh, in particular. Um, and, and so with what you're talking about, right, that's that's leads very well to my next question. Archival silences occur often while researching the lives of enslaved African uh, uh, women and Afri uh, women of African descent. In Wicked Flesh and your other work, what methodologies do you employ to unearth the lives, experiences, and textured lives, right? Especially, right? You're talking about a lot of complicated um, political, you know, maneuverings by a lot of the women in, in the book, right? How, how do you, how do you, how do you bring that about? So this was um, one of the, this in some ways is the, is the heart of writing the book and researching it. And some of the hardest work I've ever had to do in my life. <laughs> um, mm. Because, uh, and one of the things I say in the book is that this is not, this is, this book is not a micro history. You know, each of the chapters does ground itself in particular stories and, and sort of open with particular stories. Um, and one that is um, that people who read it will uh, will often be most are often gravitating to um, is the story of Mari Bold who goes across um, goes from Senegal to um, to Louisiana, uh, and so in that sense it it almost can has vestiges of you know the biographical turn or thinking about micro histories. Um, we can think of like um, Rebecca Scott and John Hebrard's uh, history of Rosalie of the Poulard Nation. It becomes Rosalie Vincent in uh, in New Orleans. This book, however, I, I, I push back from it being exactly that. It's not a micro history per se. What it is, is um, what I hope it is and hope it comes off as is um, a history that is um, practicing these same sort of murky, contingent and fluid freedoms, fluid lives that these women themselves are experiencing. Uh, and that means combining essentially research in um, archives in three different continents, multiple um, uh, Spanish, French, and English language documents, uh, and pulling together where possible uh, the biographical details of, of some of the women's lives, uh, but also where that's not possible, being okay with sort of releasing that biography and speaking both more broadly to what um, Black women's lives and experiences are and what it means to be Black and woman as a dyad in these worlds, um, and also speaking to what we can't possibly know. And so one of the, um, along with sort of having, you know, these these stories of these particular women um, throughout the the course of so this, the book goes from say like 1685 to, to 1810 is those are rough brackets um, along with sort of following some of their stories it also um, I also have moments where I'm talking about what we can't know and um, questioning what are the ways that what we know actually may not be the full story there's a story of um, uh, Louis Congo is the first um, black um, executioner. Um, they call him the Negro executioner, uh, Negro executioner in the documents, and his um, he uh, uh, agrees to take that role in part um, to gain the you know freedom, the manumission. He, he tries to get the manumission of um, this woman he's calling his wife, uh, and I say his woman he's calling his wife because I, I what I try and do there is sort of bracket the ways that uh, men. Um, even if you are of African descent, the structure of French colonial society allowed um, African men and men of African descent to secure a kind of space um, in uh, the colonial world that allowed them to be a bridge 
to African women and women of African descent's freedom. Um, and that in some ways was the most accessible bridge for um, a few years uh, for any enslaved women who were trying to get free. So you could get free um, if um, you were, if a, a man was apprenticing to be, um, apprenticing himself essentially, or um, indenturing himself in order to secure your freedom. Uh, but then that also comes with other kinds of questions that we have not always been comfortable asking. Like, well, is Suzanne saying yes to this? <laughs> or is she being claimed as a wife by this man? Um, is she um, agreeing to you know, move to this part of the um, plantation, which is he gets a plot of land in a different um, section of, 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 the, of the town? Uh, does she agree to that? Like, what are these are? And these are questions we can't possibly know, as far as the archive that we have been able to uncover thus far. And so, I think those questions become really important. I'm really um, informed and humbled by the work of Marisa Fuentes and thinking about reading along the bias grain of Sylvia Hartman and thinking about critical fabulation and how we can really challenge the archive to not necessarily tell stories that are not there, but to um, to be explicit about where the archive has its limits and to understand those as limits of power and of, of, of empire more than sort of like the absence of possibility in black women's lives in, in, in the era. So there's, so there's, um, there's a lot of um, kind of a, a balancing act between where we have women's stories and what we can make of them and where there just are no stories, but we know based on the context, based on the, um, the, the, the material that is around this event or this moment or this time and place, that of course Black women are here. And of course they're doing things. And of course they're trying to activate. Um, and therefore, of course, they're trying to activate freedom in all of its many contingent and murky meanings. Mm. And yeah, that, that definitely was manifested in, in the text. And, and, you know, shout out to you, Dr. Fuentes. You know, I know you're listening. I know you're listening. Um, and and one of the things that I also wonder about too, in terms of methodologies and 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 practices within the work that that you do, um, you know, Dr. Johnson, in my best time during the morning show voice, you're the hardest working academic I know, <laughs> right? And Wicked Flesh is one of many illustrations of this work, and and really the community that I'm sure helped to produce uh, the book with you. Can you describe the academic communities that helped you develop Wicked Flesh and any people, you know, in addition uh, that you might want to shout out to? <laughs> shout out time. Is that what this is? <laughs> hey, hey, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, you know, like this, this book, <laughs> this book is a, a long time in the making. The research is a long time in the making and the writing um, also. And so it, there, I'm convinced that there's no um, academic work that is not produced in a rich and layered community. And so, of course, you have um, the community of Black women historians and historians of Black women's history who have um, helped support me and also the work more broadly. Um, the people that uh, I'm thinking of, like people like Erica Dunbar, Jennifer Morgan, um, uh, Sophie White, who also has a new book on, uh, fantastic new book on New Orleans. Um, uh, the people who are uh, Marisa Fuentes, who I already mentioned um, and who I admire um, unbelievably highly. <laughs> um, Taya Miles, whose work on um, uh, indigenous 
um, history and slavery and, um, and Black history and slavery has helped really pave the way for thinking about these things in in tandem together, which is extremely important for the Gulf Coast, Barbara Krautheimer. There's so many. And so um, Association of Black Women Historians, absolutely have to make sure I mention that um, and them. And so there's there's that community of scholars and thinkers. Uh, and then there also there's also a kind of broader community that I that I owe so much of my commitment and understanding of of black life, of black queer lives, of black freedom even. Um, freedom beyond the act, beyond the page and paper and the manumission act too. And um, a lot of that is a part of um, a community of folks who um, came together around um, uh, digital things, um, radical women of color work, um, Alexis Pauling Gums, Moya Bailey, um, people who are really very much part of organizing on the ground uh, ways of rethinking um, what, possibility is and that's in in thinking about black feminist thought but also like what does it mean for us to think about um and i'm gonna think i'm i'm recently read dub so lexus's work is very much on my mind what does it mean to think about a kind of species-wide reframing of freedom and of possibility mm. and humanity so um you know folks who are doing that work sarah, that come to mind are like sarah haley uh christina sharp um, Ruthie Gilmore, uh, Sylvia Winter, of course, is the work that um, many people will cite. Um, Catherine McKittrick, you know, I could like literally go on and on. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, like I do want like, you know, to attend to this question in a way of thinking about like, not only are there many layers um, when it comes to an academic work like this, but there are also, it's also actually really important that if we're looking at African diasporic lives, we are actually having layers, that we are looking at the ways that scholars who are working in the field of history also have something to say to scholars who are working in um, Black theory or people might call Black cultural studies, that they also that these groups also have something to say and to speak back to artists and poets and um, facilitators and, and people who are, um, who are creating, um, you know, works that make us imagine things differently. So um, I, th I think that that's, uh, that's crucial for any, any kind of Black um, uh, scholarly work to, to be attuned to all the different levels of Black life. Like our work is not just for the academy, I don't believe. I believe our work is for, it's well beyond that. Um, the last thing I'll say is that there is, um, there is a way that this work is also very attuned to um, and accountable to, I say, I say often, if you, if anybody who follows me online, I say often I'm accountable to the kitchen table. And so there, so I'm accountable. I've tried to be and remain accountable to what it means for, um, regular, regular black women to come to the kitchen table as theorists, as thinkers, um, as dreamers, um, and as creators and to take that kitchen table world as seriously as we might take like the seminar world of, of the Academy. Uh, and so um, this book is accountable, I hope in that ways, but I also hope that that kitchen table is also a kitchen table that fits somewhere in, um, in New Orleans. Um, and so when I think of the ways that um, this book emerged into the world, uh, what I wish for it and hope for it is that the um, cultural producers, scholars and thinkers who are black women of New Orleans, uh, are able to see something in it and um, recognize themselves in it uh, and feel 
uplifted and held by it. So uh, I have a, um, I quote Brenda Marie Osby quite a bit in it um, as an example um, of, of one of the kind of figures that I, um, that I am, am accountable to um, and mm-hmm. incubated this, um, this project with, in my head at least, I don't know her, I, through her work, <laughs> <laughs> through her work, my, my deep, profound admiration for her work, for Ray Paris, for Christina K. Robinson, Gia Hamilton, so many others. Hey, well, we're going to have to make sure that uh, we get this episode to them to make sure that, you know, that, that everybody feels the warmth of the love, socially distanced, of course. And so, <laughs> mask up, mask <laughs> up. <laughs> hey, hey, put that mask up. And, and also make sure, y'all, the nose, the nose, like, 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 it's not just there for show. Put that thing up on your nose. On that's the another, nose. That, it's so uh, true. <laughs> that's, <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, Next question, you know, or the last question rather actually leads to one of my favorites, right? Which is a writerly question. Um, I've been listening to uh, Mark Lamont Hill's uh, Coffee and Books and his most recent episode with uh, Dr. Imani Perry was just like, it's in my head. So the word writerly is at the tip of my tongue now. And so as a graduate student nearing the dissertation phase, thank you, Lord, of the doctoral process, I'm always interested to learn about the writing processes and approaches of my favorite scholars, aka, that's you. You're on that other side, that, that, that's you. Can you describe your own writing process and any writerly habits you developed over, over the years from your graduate school days at UMD to your present position at Johns Hopkins University with amazing scholars, Black scholars, Dr. Martha Jones, Dr. Uh, Sasha Turner, Dr. Nathan Connolly, and the list goes on throughout the you know university. So, yeah, no, it's um, if first of all, it's phenomenal to work with uh, such an amazing group of colleagues. Like I could not have asked for a better group of of peers and support network and um, and folks at at Hopkins to to. Um, think through this project with and think through the next project with and just to just to work with they're, they're fantastic um my writing my my, my writing uh my writerliness uh, <laughs> so um i uh, i'll say two things one is that i have been and am committed to writing at least five of the seven days of the week um and so that means for me um i took very seriously I was introduced very early on in my, um, uh, what you call it, my, my professional, my professional career, like beyond after graduate school, to Carrie Ann Rockamore's work um, and how to gain tenure without losing your soul, and then the later um, Center for Diversity, uh, yes, that she has created. Um, and one of the things that has been a staple of many things that I've taken up and, and let go of, and um, to you know my own help and detriment. Um, one of the things that I have always held on to is that you, for me, it works to write every day. It's very important to me, um, at least half an hour. It's been different parts of the day, different time periods. It was very, very early on, early in the morning. At one point, now I have a small child. So now it's later in the evening or in the afternoon, but carving out at least half an hour, that is my own time that I can only write, and so no reading, no downloading PDFs, just writing, um, has been really, really crucial uh, to continuing a writing practice. I find that 
um, like exercise for me, at least writing is like exercise. So if I don't do it for a week, I'm making up for more than not getting a word count over a week. I'm making up for the flow of the process and where my last thought was and what my next thought you know, would be, et cetera, et cetera. So writing in a, whatever the pace is, writing at a regular pace is, is really, really important. Um, and writing, you know, writing through not being inspired. I'm not always inspired. Octavia Butler said, um, Oh gosh, now I'm going to forget what she said. Habit is persistence in practice, I think is the quote, um, which is about her writing practice and how she, you know, like, again, you sit at the table regardless. Um, So there is, um, there's that large piece of just sort of like an everyday exercise of writing. But the other piece that I found was really helpful early on and continues to sort of guide my general approach to projects um, writing projects, at least, is that small chunks go down easier. Um, I have a, a a blog post that I did, I think in 2014 or 2015, it sort of breaks down how I create an essay or journal article and now, you know, book chapter book. Uh, and the reality is like, it is for me much easier to think in about 250 word bites than it is to think of a huge, large project of chapters and introductions and footnotes and whatever else. If we break the project down into these smaller bites, they go down easier. It's easier to grasp the point. It's easier to make the points connect. And the points then do eventually lead to a page, five pages, 10 pages, a book chapter, um, a longer book. So uh, applying that in general to most things in my life (laughs) has been really helpful um, because I think that sometimes when, particularly if you've never written a book, and this is my first one, uh, a book seems so daunting. A dissertation, if you've never written one, seems so daunting. If you break it down into these smaller pieces, and if you just work on those pieces bit by bit every day or on whatever regular chance you get, you you will actually get through them. And the work will be richer as a result of that more constant um, attention than if you sort of binge write at the end of a semester or, um, or you know, um, something similar. And also, right, so so you're obviously a, a, a writer, but you're also engaged in the, in the Black DH space and you're doing so many other things. How do you balance multiple projects? <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> That's not easy. <laughs> so, um, so same same principle applies though. <laughs> small small chunks go down easier. Got you, got so, so you. this so this I will say there's some over there's like a Venn diagram there of like writing and then and projects and in the middle of that Venn diagram is is that small chunks go down easier. Breaking down big projects into smaller pieces, taking it a day, an hour at a time, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is really really important. But the other piece is. Um, Having uh, really great collaborators. Um, uh, I have had the pleasure of working with some fantastic people on almost all of my projects um, and bringing in fantastic people into various projects. So if I think of African Diaspora PhD, which is probably the longest running digital space that I've had, um, I created that in, in 2008, there's always been some engagement um, between African Diaspora PhD and Radical Women of Color, um, blogging online um, or 
Um, other scholars have um, have come on and, and done things for the project, who've either written blog posts or um, been part of like you know curating the social media. I think of like Natasha Lightfoot. Uh, well, early on, Alusia Arujo and Kadada Williams were working on the project, working on ADPHD with me um, for social media. You have Natasha Lightfoot, um, uh, Ebony Jones, uh, Yomara Figueroa. Um, Alusia continues to collaborate. Um, I continue to collaborate with her on now the Slavery Archive Book Club. Uh, so, like having an amazing collaborators um, is so 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 important. Um, Queering Slavery Working Group. I co-organize um, and co-convene with Dr. Vanessa Holden. Uh, so pretty much all of um, a, a lot of the projects that that I'm on. Um, I'm working with with other amazing people, and that actually just makes it easy. Like I want to go <laughs> work with um, Vanessa and talk about the ways that you know queering enslaved lives is actually a really critical piece of how we understand slavery and freedom in the, in, in the early America. Um, I want to. I love working with the Electric Maronage team right now. I'm co-directing it with Yamada Figueroa, who is at um, Michigan State University, and we have an amazing team of graduate students um, across both of our institutions. Jada Simpleton and Stephanie Bravo at Michigan State, um, Haley Ashby, Kelsey Moore, Aya Nurdin, and Christina Thomas, who is also the lead editor over at Hopkins. Um, Christina Thomas is also program manager for Life Code, um, DH Against Enclosure, that um, we are pulling together projects around Black life and Black history um, and uh, thinking about you know, enclosure and refusal and all of these um, really important strategies for resistance and for fugitivity and for maronage and for expanding freedom. And so it's um, it's really just like, it's, it's, it's almost a thing that has to be done. <laughs> and it's a thing that gives me mm-hmm. so much joy in life that it's, it's, it fuels the other kinds of work that I have to do, whether that's book work, whether that's teaching on campus, whether that's um, the kind of um, institution building that happens at, at universities. Um, and I would be remiss if I did not also shout out Mark Anthony Neal and the work we've been doing with Black Code Studies and the important work that he's done with Left of Black, which really kind of like um, sets out a model for how to do Black digital spaces and to collaborate and to create a community around Black thought online. So, yeah, I just, I'm just learn, I just try and learn from everybody I can. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Look, I'm like I like I told you offline. I uh, I definitely uh, owe my almost now well over seventy uh, interviews that I've done with New Books and FM to you and to Dr. Neil. So, Dr. Neil, we gonna get it to you, brother. I hope you're listening. <laughs> um, you know, and, and also speaking of um, balancing projects and uh, you know such like that, Dr. Johnson, you're also one of the foremost scholars of Black DH. Did your background as a Black digital humanist inform how you visualized and constructed Wicked Flesh? So it did, you know, and I remember somewhere in the midst of working on Wicked Flesh, I think 
Um, you know, I remember getting questions about how digital this this book would be, and it's a profoundly analog book <laughs> at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, um, which was on purpose, you know, for a lot of reasons. Um, I, but uh, the digital does inform the framing, um, the methodology, the commitment to being um, fluid and contingent and murky. I think is also a product of my engagement and my orientation towards digital things, um, to di- digital practice, um, as I um, as I discuss in um, the 4DH article, in which you talk about there is a world of digital um, practice that is beyond sort of the DH that comes out of the academy and the DM, the digital media that comes out of sort of mega uh, mainstream media and techno- technocratic giants um, like Google or, or Huffington Post, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's ways that my commitment to exploring Black women's lives in a way that is not sort of super celebratory and that is in a way that really pushes against sort of like the the, the fetishization of Black women in this era um, and the um, and that pushes through a study of the violence um, that accepts that, like every other figure um, of the early modern world, that African women are diverse and different. Um, that they have their own they had their own individual um, orientations towards what options were available to them. That they didn't always win whatever winning might mean to us, whatever success means to us in this you know, 21st century um, era, um, that was not always the conclusion of their stories and it wasn't even always the point. And I think that I gained that certainly from my digital practice, certainly from coming up through digital worlds that were um, about um, not just like uh, Black women um, organizing, but about a broad coalition of Black, Latinx, indigenous, um, queer, trans organizers who were not committed to a kind of respectability politics or neo-respectability politics, who are not committed to one vision of success and who are not committed to um, nation building in the way that we imagine sort of nation building to be like state creation. Um, we some ways call this, um, talk about this online these days, is like fugitivity and marinage. And I think that that is a branch of that. Um, and I think wicked flesh is another, is another branch, the kind of wickedness that these um, women are um, representing to the French, um, to even the, the men who are their husbands, as some of the stories um, tell, uh, that kind of wickedness for the women is in some ways is a superpower. Uh, and so I think that that's kind of has been, and how I've, um, try to challenge digital engagement um, in, the, um, in the past and in, in, in the present as well. Uh, one of the formulations in the book is called the null value. And this does come very specific. It's probably the most digital aspect of the book. <laughs> mm-hmm, very specifically mm-hmm. from thinking about the ways that, you know, how can we understand, you know, the, the absences differently? You know, so how can we understand something like the census register as a document that is, a, a produced in power and therefore itself contingent, um, therefore itself contested 
in fact. Um, but also, what do we do then with the kind of empty spaces in the register where um, enslaved women don't like almost literally don't appear or where um, their categories do not match up with the whole range of categories that are in the enslaved and free Black community in, at different time periods. And so the null value um, I discuss in the book is a way to um, to think about how do we bracket the empty spaces in the archive, uh, but without presuming that the empty space therefore means we don't give attention to it, or that the empty space means something um, profoundly negative. Um, so this is another one that was sort of like pushing through the violence of the archive, of which it is fundamentally violent and imperial, and thinking about, okay, so what is this? What, how do we understand what these empty spaces mean? Um, and the null is a way of thinking about what does not compute? Um, what are the ways that Black lives um, are profoundly not computing in this document and therefore in this era, in this moment, in this, in this space of um, a town that has to document, you know, um, beasts of labor, furniture, property, and what else? So why wouldn't uh, Black people compute here? Well, could be freedom. It could be marinage. It could be um, grappling with, you know, the 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 um, huge mobility, the extensive mobility of Africans moving back and forth from the plantations, across the river, from the swamps, from the lake into the into the town. So there's all these different ways that I talk about the null value actually may be a useful framework for having a discussion about why and where. Um, in this instance, Black people are not computing, but why or where different um, different populations may or may not compute in this um, in a given um, society in a given time and space. So that's also that does come very much from um, Jacob Gabori, um, Mimi Onuwa, um, and other folks who have talked about you know like missing data, misplaced data, um, non-existent data, and, and the null value itself as ways of. Um, problematizing, you know, data and its primacy as as um, um, as a unit of analysis. Oof, that, oof, my goodness, that that that's that's a lot. Ooh we, I can't. Ooh we, look, y'all. I told y'all. I told y'all. Y'all got to buy the book. She she giving y'all. She she giving us facts. But look, the way she breaks it down in the book. Look, y'all, y'all, y'all just gotta buy it. University of Pennsylvania Press. Go get it. Go get it. Not now, but right now. And so um, one of the things I enjoyed just uh, about that particular discussion was th th that you just gave is one of the things that I always find that's interesting is how often for, I would say, maybe good reason, um, folks often choose the celebratory stories to write about, right, in terms of the, the histories of, of, of Black folks. And Wicked Flesh, as, as you talked about and also to me, shows readers um, a deeper and more nuanced picture of the lives uh, lived by African women and women of African descent in a horrendously violent world. Mm -hmm. um, and so on page three, you call attention to how, and I quote you, the practice of freedom that Black women practice was murky, messy, and contingent, end quote. Going kind of back to research and organization and, and structure, how do you approach this particular issue as you formulate the work, right? So, so, so try to get us into that meta space because I'm sure that there are a lot of graduate students like myself and other scholars who are thinking about how to represent life, right? Life has as the enslaved and as the the free and 
as the unfree lived it? Because I'm sure that that's an issue that a lot of folks have. Yeah, this is such a, um, this is a, it's an important issue to have. Um, and it's one that I fear I won't have a, um, easy clear cut answer for, for you or for anybody trying to tackle it. (laughs) Hey, murky, messy, murky, (laughs) messy. And that will be my answer is that it's murky and it's messy. I mean, so for me, um, it was really important. I'm glad we're coming back to this because it was really important that these stories that I, um, told in Wicked Flesh, um, were not solely celebratory. That in fact, most of the stories um, either end in some kind of unclear or opaque um, conclusion, uh, or you know, like um, like Maribo's story, um, end with a kind of you know dark twist that tells us in some ways more about the society than it does about you know what happens to her in in the world of um, slave the slaveholding Gulf Coast. Uh, and this was really important to me for a few reasons. One is that uh, it, it is critical that as historians of slavery, we resist the temptation to um, to create a narrative of slavery to freedom, where freedom is the success is the um the end goal is um is the best we can do <laughs> and by freedom in this instance i mean freedom as in emancipation freedom as in the manumission act freedom as in escape from bondage and and again in this i'm informed um ever so much by um by folks like um Cydia hartman who have long been challenging this kind of uh, the liberal notion of freedom um, liberty, um, natural liberty, all of these things as problematic when faced with uh, the history of Black life. Um, I also think of like Thomas Holt, Frederick Cooper's work, um, people who are, who have situated, Rebecca Scott, people who have situated the post-emancipation society as a space where things uh, were not necessarily um, as free as even the ideas of emancipation um, discourse at that time uh, required or desired. Um, and then that freedom gets closed down. We can think of like U.S. Reconstruction, that freedom gets closed down violently. Um, but also that the freedom that, for instance, if we continue with the with U.S. Reconstruction, um, the freedom that, uh, that uh, former slave owners, uh, the Union Army, Union officials, Northern um, philanthropists and capitalists had in mind for enslaved people was not necessarily always the freedom that Black people imagine. And I think there's ways that um, we can get caught up in, you know, the success of having the biography or the success of um, enslaved people securing the Manumission Act um, and, you know, getting property, which also included often owning slaves, um, and, you know, expanding their their legacies of freedom, which I do talk about in the book, um, and that that be, you know, the, the meaning of expanded humanity. And I don't think actually that that's what um, enslaved people had in mind. <laughs> I think that for, and I think slavery scholars know this, it's just hard to write into it. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, a study of slavery, a deep, rigorous, intensive study of slavery and, and slavery's archive shows us that enslaved people imagine the freedom that we still have yet to have achieved, even in this 2020 world, as 
um, you know, this summer, if anything has shown us. And so mm-hmm. what are the ways that um, we find uh, comfort, uh, kind of strange comfort in sitting with what is messy, with what is contingent, with what is uncomfortable, um, with with the possibilities of freedom that we are still trying to achieve. Um, some things perhaps born of modernize, some things perhaps born of, you know, um, patronage and kinship. Uh, but the freedoms that our enslaved people had, I don't think they um, equal out to uh, the liberal freedoms, the liberal ideas of freedom that the West has offered up, um, in part in response to subjugating enslaved people and the larger global South. And so not having a celebratory narrative was really, really important in that way, because celebration still is too synonymous with um uh, Western ideas and conceptions of, of, of success and um, acquisition and um, new statism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, instead, I wanted to sit and think of Christina Sharp's work in the wake of the work that these women were doing to create new visions of society, new visions of the world. But the second one, second reason I wanted to make sure I tried to, um, you know, not delve too deeply into like celebration is that um, that often gets applied to Black women in New Orleans and to Black people of New Orleans. So there's, you know, the celebration of um, the Black slave owner, the celebration of um, uh, Black women who are, you know, so beautiful they seduce their slave owners or um, so um, uh, supernatural that they create these systems of belief. And the thing is, like, this is why it becomes difficult because they are so supernatural and they are so so um, so challenging in that way to our conceptions of intimacy, of sexuality, of pleasure, of and and kinship. Um, but to there's also a um, a danger of tipping that all the way into into fetish, into hypersexualization, um, into something that that these women wouldn't necessarily have claimed as their own. Um, and so balancing. Um, understanding and and wanting to center Black women's um, intimate practices as complicated as they were, um, and not as you know successful in always securing freedom. Like just because you are with a slave owner, you will secure freedom. That fundamentally wasn't true, um, and or as a result of like. Um, uh, your uh, your proximity to whiteness. If you were a mulatress, you were more likely to get free than a negress. Um, also, not necessarily true either. Uh, so, how to balance some of the myths that exist that are about what um, slave owners then and historians now understood to be the assumptions that we make about race and gender and the gendered um, frameworks that these women are existing in. How to balance those assumptions and stereotypes against some of the very real creative creative uh, moves that um, Black women are making in this time period as a result of um, being seen as wicked flesh. So mm-hmm. um, uh, a lot of this uh, is also owed so much to um, Horton Spillers and the conception of flesh that she offers, um, has offered us in thinking about the ways that um, the whole category of gender um, does a monumental shift and change as it comes across the Atlantic, as the slave ship brings um, enslaved women across, the enslaved women and girls across the Atlantic. Uh, and how to, um, and that, that is not necessarily a success story. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> so how to bring that, you know, like, so, so it's, so it's a struggle with bringing all of those um, parameters into, um, into the story of, of black women. And if it did, if Wicked Flesh does anything, what I hope is that it's able to, as black women so often have to breathe through the violence to find spaces mm. to um, to rest easy or still dance or still create or still have a feast. Um, because that's actually, I, I think that that's actually more um, true to how um, enslaved women and free women of African descent live their lives and, um, and the legacy that we can take from them today. Mm. And that actually makes me think a lot about um, the the term that you use is uh, black femme freedom, um, and it plays an integral role in Wicked Flesh. What is black femme freedom as characterized in, in Wicked Flesh, and how did you actually come to to theorize this important and, and, and very impactful term in, in the text? So, um, black femme freedom um, is a term that I use in the text. Um, to capture the ways, uh, the ways and the um, the product, the thing, the the essence of what gets created uh, in that transition from Africa to the Americas. Um, one of the things that the book um, that I grappled with in the book is how to think about blackness in particular um, and womanhood as a dyad. That was not um, that was that is tied to um, Atlantic slavery and the rise of slaveholding empires, but was also challenges all the binaries that um, that historians have put on them that have been bequeathed to us. So, what are the ways again taking up Spiller's framework of of flesh um, that if we take that seriously, that the ungendering of the Middle Passage reduces enslaved Africans um, beyond gender, beyond the body to flesh. Um, So then what then gets created in the Americas and how do we appreciate that as a process and not as a unit of analysis that just sort of ends up on the ship and then lands in the Americas. And then we take it for granted that it is, it is X thing or it is Y thing. Um, one of the things in the book, um, and it's the process piece, I think, is a piece that that, I, that Wicked Flesh, I hope, is challenging throughout. Challenging the idea that slavery is any one thing. Challenging the idea that freedom is any one thing. Challenging the idea that, that Black womanhood is any one thing. And instead, asking the reader, asking us as scholars to think about that these things have histories. And so Black Femme Freedom, I introduce as a framework to think about, you know, the moment when... Africans from African from a range of spaces and places with a range of experiences, um, even in the Middle Passage crossing, even in their landing in the Americas, come together um, and have to navigate this thing that is in some ways familiar to them and in some ways imposed upon them called blackness. That gets that, that becomes called blackness. Um, and uh, those who understand themselves to be or are seen as or are represented by or ascribed as women um, and girls, ascribed as um, a gender that becomes women, um, have, to, have to come together and understand that also to have a particular meaning. Um, femme is a term, Black femme is a term, um, well, femme is a term that um, I 
uh, draw and also um, hope to um, signal uh, from uh, Black queer studies, Black trans studies, um, as a way to think about the ways to think about womanhood that are not biological, that are not contingent on the body, that are not contingent on slave owners' views of um, enslaved bodies or enslaved um, representations. Uh, and femme is also the word for woman in French. So it does, um, it's a way to kind of bracket a particular moment in which these, these identities and representations and senses of selves are shifting fundamentally because of the imperial pressures and the slave-owning pressures that um, um, African women and women African descent are, are experiencing. Um, but they're also coming together in these particular kind of ways that um, allow for a lingua franca of blackness and a lingua franca of feminists, of femininity, of womanhood to be spoken within the enslaved and free, um, free black woman community. And one of the things I try and stress is that this manifests, this allows us to kind of think about, you know, the kinds of practices enslaved and free women of color are engaged in differently um, as practices that are couched in their womanhood and their femininity, their, their attention and their care for each other as women, as femmes, not as, not in a kind of heteropatriarchal dyad of, um, you know, the husband and the wife caring for each other, the, the black family caring for each other. There are the examples I begin to give in that part of the book are about women caring for other women, women loving other women um, above and beyond, in some ways, the different men that are around them. Um, and, and that becomes, I think, a really important way for us to kind of capture uh, some of the fundamental queerness of Black womanhood in a world of slaves, um, that there is really something uh, transgressive and uh, resistive uh, and flagrant about the audacity of women who come to each other's defense, who hold feasts for each other, who dance with each other, who care for each other above and beyond what this patriarchal society is, is meant to, um, to, to mark for them, the space that is meant to mark for them. So Black Femme Freedom um, is, um, is that. It's that, um, it's that audacious care uh, that Black women um, have manifest and the identities and the worlds that they create out of that. Um, out of that care, even in the midst of this um, this devastating um, this devastating new world. Mm. And speaking of, of of space and also place in this kind of way, um, I want to transition a little bit to looking at the Gulf Coast in particular, and just thinking about how on you know in the 18th century Gulf Coast that we all know about, um, it was inhabited by multiple native polities. I noticed that as well. I listened to you speak about this uh, briefly in um, your uh, Slavery Archive book club discussion um, about the different native polities, but also free and enslaved Africans along with European settler colonialists. What does Wicked Flesh tell us about the overlapping experiences of African women and native polities on the 18th century Gulf Coast? So Wicked Flesh is, um, the Gulf Coast is uh, this, fantastic and devastating site of overlapping empires, overlapping diasporas, um, overlapping polities um, that 
African women have to figure out how to navigate. Um, I'd mentioned um, Taya Miles and Barbara Krauthammer before, and there are others, Nikia Parker is another one I can think of, who are trying to think about Black and Indigenous histories uh, together. And, and Wicked Flesh does delve into some of this, particularly around the Natchez Revolt and, um, uh, and, and the aftermath of that. Uh, and the impact that that has in creating different institutions for freedom, essentially, um, that uh, sort of leave, literally leave enslaved um, and free Black, well, the very few free Black women who are there um, in in this, you know, gulf in between. Um, The way I write about it uh, and the thing that I found as I was researching is that it is important to appreciate the ways that African women who are forced onto these ships who arrive um, in this devastating migration to the Gulf Coast are not the only inhabitants. Um, the French are not the only inhabitants in this world. Um, I use Kathleen Duvall's um, framing of native grounds to describe this Gulf Coast region. Um, and I try to emphasize, uh, and it is important to emphasize, the French in the Americas and in, in, in North America are this tiny minority uh, compared to the native polities that they're navigating. The other piece that, that has to be uh, integrated in here also are that these native polities are not unfamiliar with slaveholding and not unfamiliar with captive, um, with wars and, and prisoners of war and, and what to do with captives. And so into this mix, um, comes a understand again the histories of process. Everything the the history of African slavery and chattel slavery and how it develops in the Gulf Coast is also the history of uh, Natchez, Chickasaw, Choctaw, um, imperial um, warfare, imperial challenges, slave trading between each other, slave trading with the French, with the British in South Carolina. Um, that this is also changing how those conceptions of slavery are developing in, over the course of the 18th century, and that these, you know, two uh, African slavery, indigenous slavery, are also changing how the French are understanding what their diplomatic um, relationships to the Natchez should be, which is part of what sparks the Natchez Revolt, a breakdown of diplomatic relations. It's changing for the French. It's changing how they understand they should relate to the African slaves in their midst. Um, they create the Free Black Militia in part out of trying to find soldiers to fight the Natchez, to fight the Chickasaw. And so all of this is a, is a process that I think in a lot of ways, um, Wicked Flesh does work around this um, in the realm of how African women are experiencing this and what it means to be chattel and also confiscated in the context of, of, of struggles between Natchez, Chickasaw, Choctaw, French, British, um, you know, the Caribbean, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's also so much work that needs to be done to really kind of tease out a lot of this, a lot of this process. And so uh, this, uh, the pieces that I have in here that are about uh, the, these, these exchanges that happen in the wake of the Natchez war and the, the, um, the Natchez war and it's, and it's role in sparking slave, um, slave revolts and slave conspiracies um, in New Orleans and what um, some have called the Samba Bambara um, slave uh, conspiracy, um, conspiracy to revolt. Uh, this is only like one, I feel like I only scratched the surface in touching on, you know, these relations and this history. There's so much more that needs to be done to kind of get at the ways that Black and Indigenous are are interacting in, um, in, in this realm. Uh, and I think some of the things that it tells us are, is that 
Uh, we have not, if we look at this world, again, from the perspective of African women and women of African descent, what we are seeing um, are the ways that a particular kind of understanding of uh, chattel slavery, of hereditary bondage begins to emerge uh, and it begins to emerge and gravitate itself around around Black women's bodies. Um, but again, there's so much more work to be done. I, I know for a fact that I only scratched the surface and um, and I hope that others will, um, will continue to dive in. I know that um, Native studies and Native histories is having a, a very important and um, highlighted role in our early American um, in our early American historiography right now and in early American academy broadly. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. Especially in light of a particular kerfuffle, shall we call, uh, <laughs> that happened over Zoom, uh, what a couple, what I guess a month ago or so, and um, yeah, so. Uh, Mm-hmm. There, there's a reckoning that needs to be that needs to happen, and uh, it looks like something's in the motion. Don't know what, but stay tuned, as <laughs> as, as we say. <laughs> so I much, so. so much under the surface. We, 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 we. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna lead that alone. I'm gonna lead that alone. Um, and so, uh, looking more to the contemporary, and looking towards just looking more at you, Dr. Johnson. Do you feel called to the work that you were engaged in? This is such a powerful question. Um, I do, I do. I feel, I feel very much called to it. Um, I think uh, those of us who study the history of slavery are special people <laughs> in the best ways. Um, we have made it our charge in some ways to talk to, you know, talk to ghosts and to talk to a very, very bloody archive. And I know we say that a lot, uh, talk about slavery's archive, but it really is actually that bad. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and yet we are still here. And I often, um, you know, I've gotten the question before of, you know, like, how do you do this work? And I, and I think that that's in some ways, um, when I think about what enslaved people like go through, went through, um, experience and what they have to offer us. Um, it's really more of like, well, how could, how can you not? Um, and so, yes, I do think, um, I do feel called to do this work. Um, I hope that I am doing it as, um, rigorously and as, um, accountably as, and ethically as possible. Um, and I think that that's all, that's all I can, all we can ask for. Um, I suppose. And I do hope others, also feel called to it. I, I mean, I do, it is, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It is a, it is a, um, it is hard work, but I don't want people to be afraid of it either. If that makes sense. I think we need mm-hmm. more, um, more black scholars in particular to, to dive into this archive. It is um, often multilingual because that's how the sources come to us. Um, the sources are hard to read. They're in script. They're sometimes crumbling in your hands. The, they often require travel to, you know, terrible places like France. Like, oh, who wouldn't want to go there? Like, you know, like, <laughs> guys, <laughs> come research <laughs> the history of slavery. Um, because even if you, even for those who um, study other eras, uh, the history of slavery, like having to really grapple with it and get into that history it changes how you study everything else. It changes your frameworks, your methodology. It changes your relationship to what has been written in the past. Um, it changes your theorization. 
Uh, so um, I am, you know, I'm always here for folks who are trying to uh, get into this kind of work. It's very, very important now more than ever. Mm-hmm. And, and you also just just briefly, you mentioned uh, travel, right, to these awful places like France. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Uh, Right, no, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, where, where, for Wicked Flesh and the research, how, like, like, where exactly did you go? Right, did you know? Were you obviously France, but also what other uh, archives or other locations throughout the globe did you go to? Um, so the research uh, I was able to do, I um, did much of an exemplaire. Um, in France, um, which uh, is a fantastic, um, the overseas archive there is a fantastic archive. Um, the was also research that was done in um, Senegal, um, which also is a really important site for anybody who is doing, in particular, 19th century um, Senegal history. There is a lot, a lot, a lot about um, the seigneurs there. And, um, you know, the, the kinds of engagements they have with um, French officials, with, um, with each other, property, uh, notorial records there. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating work. Um, I know Hillary Jones is doing this work. Lindsay Gish is doing this work um, and many others. Um, and uh, Louisiana, um, Louisiana's archives are extremely rich, painfully rich. Um, Louisiana Historical Center, Historic New Orleans Collection, uh, the New Orleans City Archive, the Notorial Records, Archdiocese of um, of New Orleans. Um, there is so much, um, so 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 much material there. There's also material um, in um, at the University of Florida as well. For those who are interested in getting into this work, there is um, material in the archives. Um, in um, Port-au-Prince, um, Haiti, um, there is untapped material uh, in the, uh, the archives in Martinique and Guadeloupe. So again, like with just uh, this is the kind of work, era, and time and place that just this just scratches the surface. Amen, amen. And and one of the things that even just from that description, water plays a central central role in this entire story. Um, and, and Wicked Flesh really reminds me about the importance of water waves and waterways to our understanding of Blackness, the West, and also the larger African diaspora. Each facet also draws my eyes and ears to the beautiful melodies of also Black music as well, right? We were talking about New Orleans. If you could create a supplemental Wicked Flesh mixtape... <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners to listen to that encapsulates the lives of the women of uh, within the story that you provide in Wicked Flesh, what musicians and whose music would you choose? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Um, uh, Mark Anthony Neal asked me once um, when I was in an interview with uh, Dr. Treep W. Lindsay about our, our essay, Searching for Climax, um, about like it was a time we could do like a top five. Um, mm-hmm. It was, feels like a top five type question. <laughs> it, it's in the vein. It's, it, it's, it's in the vein. <laughs> um, so you know, it's funny. Like I've actually tried to, um, I've tried to make this this playlist 
um, multiple times. Um, and I feel like I never quite get it right. Uh, so, uh, Water is actually very important. Um, the flows of water. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book are the ways that um, diasporic and archipelagic flows bring um, bring this history together. So flows going, you know, from the continent, forced flows going from the continent to the Americas, but also the flow of 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 people, of 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 news, of of sensibilities um, from you know circling around the Caribbean. Are also very much part of this story. So, um, the you know the artists that come to mind when I'm thinking about um, Wicked Flesh are artists like um, Ibeyi, um, who is uh, our phenomenal French Cuban um, duo who do a range of of, of music, um, but their first album is um, very much. Um, attuned to sort of Orisha hymns and melodies and themes. Um, a scholar who's actually doing a lot of work around Ibeyi, Yi, whose book is about to come out, is um, Dr. Figueroa, Yumara Figueroa, um, with Decolonizing Diasporas. Um, I also think of... Um, I also think of... Uh, what you call it? Work that is also very deeply rooted in, um, in the South, um, so the work that is actually on my mind that brings me back to Wicked Flesh often is, um, um, is Megan, uh, the stallion, um, mm. and her coming on the scene and just kind of blowing us all away with, um, her audacity, um, and her unapologeticness and unapologetic black femme freedom. Um, you know, there's a song circulating right now you might've heard of called WAP. Uh, I think of this as absolutely, you know, uh, the backbeat of Wicked Flesh. I think it's it's that in the video is just um, phenomenal. Um, and uh, I think that there's ways that when I think of the the sound of Wicked Flesh, I also think of um, I I think of music genres as much as anything else. So I think of um, Cash Money. I think of um, brass bands. Uh, I think of the banjo. I know uh, Lauren Dubois has a book on the mm-hmm. banjo and the banjo's history in um, in Africa and the New World. Uh, so I think of these as sort of adding some of the soundtrack to uh, the stories of these women and the place that they're in more than anything else. And I think of the sound of the water. Like I, whenever I go to New Orleans, my first stop is to visit the river and to visit the site of um, the first landing of, of Africans uh, in, uh, in New Orleans, uh, the first um, offloading of enslaved people. Uh, and I just go and I just listen to the water. And that's uh, usually that's also has a backbeat of some jazz band that's playing in the quarter or some, some, some second line that's happening or passing by. But uh, those sounds are the sounds that I think can become um, part of the soundtrack of the uh, of this of this story and in the back there is also like um these are also legacies of diaspora right so like um in the back of the banjo is the cora you know in the back of the mm-hmm. of the brass band um is also the the downbeat of um of the drum you know the uh the conch shell you know like so there's there's ways that these are specific genres that i can think of are situated within kind of a gulf coast parameters but they have, they themselves are diasporic and archipelagic. <laughs> so, um, so they are this kind of connected tissue that I think um, can bring 
um, can bring us to the site sonically, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And I love your use of soundtrack considering uh, the next versus battle is going to be between uh, Monica and, uh, you know, Brandy. So, uh, you know, we, we, there's a, there's a lot flowing. There's a lot flowing right now. So uh, great, great, great time to be talking about this. Yes. Yes. It's very exciting. It's very, I mean, you know, COVID has us all at home, you know, trying to Mm -hmm. go through our back catalogs of what can we listen to next? (laughs) So, you know, have to enjoy what we can. Hey, absolutely. And um, and also speaking of just, you know, thinking about the, the work that we do and also um, kind of like what's what, what's at the core. Also, um, what does it mean for you to chronicle the intimate lives of women of African descent and those of the wider African diaspora? It um, it is a tremendous and humbling honor to have been able to write this book. Um, That is what it means to me. It is a very, um, it's a very intense responsibility that I hope that I've lived up to. And I hope that, um, you know, I'm able to continue to carry uh, because I don't think it's, I don't think we should take these things lightly. You know, I know people are producing books and whatnot and, you know, like, you know, the Academy is what the Academy is and um, Academy as an institution is problematic and, and all of these things. Um, and I think all of that is still true. And I, and also um, I'm a big fan of, and also, and also I think that mm-hmm. there is something so, 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 so important about telling our stories in whatever form we can and having ownership over the stories that um, that we are um, find ourselves accountable to about, you know, having ownership over the stories of our ancestors. Um, it's so important and, um, and it should not be done lightly. Um, whoever you are, whatever race you are, these are not histories. The histories that we do are not um, for the faint of hearts, I think. And um, and they're, you know, they are, they are, you know, in some ways, like as, I mean, you, you know, as a graduate student and, you know, it was, you know, you know, zooming towards the professoriate, like this is our superpower. This is the thing, mm-hmm. among other things, we have many skills and gifts to give the world, but one of them is our ability to tell these stories. Um, and this is, I think, um, a superpower that, you know, as all superheroes do, sometimes maybe we shy away from the headiness of, but you know, the griots were griots for a reason, um, to cast for a reason. And so we need to take it seriously and take up that charge and to never, ever, um, um, what you call it, downplay it, downplay the seriousness of the work that we do. For sure. For sure. And yeah, you know, like, I, I, I oh, yes, the use of the superpower. I, I hope that you, so you get that trademark because I'm, I'm sure somebody going to put that up in their syllabus, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, as, as we're all putting all this stuff together as this, as whatever the heck 20 uh, academic year 2020, 2021 is, is finished shape up to be. Um, <laughs> and so uh, this actually brings me to, to, to a light moment. Um, I remember uh so, so so you know obviously you know i'll be i'll be you know following your tweets you know you're, you're you're one of the best uh if not the goat you know greatest of all time if you all know the reference um i remember eating my proverbial popcorn while reading your tweets about the august meyer and elliot rudwick uh 1986 book black history and the historical profession 
and thinking about traditions of black scholarship in and outside of the academy. Uh, what does it mean for you to also be a member of this particular story tradition of black writers and historians of the past? Uh, I remember those tweets. Myron Redwick is such a juicy book. If if you are a historian of Black history and have not read Black History and Historical Profession, which was introduced to me by Dr. Elsa Barkley Brown, um, phenomenal Black woman historian of of which I owe all the things, um, you should read it because it's uh, it's it's delectable. <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. like reality TV for Black historians. Um, what does it mean to be part of part of this tradition? Uh, it's is um, it means that um, that I have uh, that I have an important important charge, important work to do. Um, it also means that I have work um, to do, sort of challenging what that tradition means. You know, like there are ways that you know how do we make doing Black historical work powerful and important and useful for, um, and accessible to as many people as possible. Um, and that work, I think, looks different now than it did, you know, 30 years ago, 20, 10 years ago. You know, like so much of it has, how, so much of how we think about Black history has shifted as a result of changing mechanisms of the public sphere, changing social media, changing research habitus. Like the digital research was not as much of a widespread thing as now it is and increasingly so because of COVID. So what are the ways that, you know, that I can be part of a tradition of delving deeply into the archive and thinking critically about narrative and thinking creatively about, you know, black theory and how we bring that into our work and also, you know, bringing these stories and this history to audiences that are well beyond um, the academy that are beyond the peer reviewers or the readers of the academic journal, um, but are online or are in my community. I do work with New Generation Scholars, which is a, um, a, a leadership, a youth leadership program here in Baltimore. And that is some of the most fulfilling work that I can do as a historian. I'm their African diaspora history teacher uh, because they are f- profoundly changed by the things that they learn um, that in some ways, you know, historians... Uh, you know, in the academy, the state academy, take for granted. You know, Anthony, Anthony Johnson, we take him for granted. We know his name, six nineteen. We take for granted that the mm-hmm. debate is is X debate. Um, but on the ground, like these are things that have a different kind of meaning. And so, for me, it means um, how do we think about what we do as historians and who we're doing it for? For sure, for sure, and 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 it's especially true because. You know, just trying to understand, like, you know, the work that we do, right? You know, obviously, you're on a uh, very um, interesting panel, you know, with the uh, Solid TV with the sixteen nineteen project joint. So that was that that was an interesting way to see, you know, different traditions, right? You know, you have someone like uh, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, but also you have Dr. Claiborne Carson, and then you know, very, you know, th- different eras and such like that, along with yourself and uh, Dr. Turner. So um, you know, all of these different areas were on full display that I'm sure will be on YouTube very soon. <laughs> it, will, it will be it's supposed to be on YouTube, I think, for the Asala Conference, which is, you know, open and available to, to all. So I hope people register and check out our oldest um, academic organization for African-American history and founded by Carter G. Woodson. 
And uh, and yeah, you know, yes, I think that was a very good example of many historical traditions, Black historical traditions, actually coming together, uh, and um, and having a lot to say about about this moment and what Black history is supposed to mean. Exactly, and uh, considering the fact that we're, you know, we're talking about Black history, but specifically, right? Let, let, let's 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 focus on a particular place, right? That that that's in that's in the that's in the text, right? Black New Orleans, right? I often see you tweet, right? Black New Orleans, right? And I quote, Black New Orleans is the center of the world, end quote, right? Why is Black New Orleans the center of the world? And what does Black New Orleans mean to you? Black New Orleans is absolutely the center of the world. So Black New Orleans is the center of the world is the title of an essay that I wrote that um, is part of a forum in the Journal of African American History, I think um, two or three years ago. I, I can't remember if it's 2018 or 20. 19. I can't believe time has passed so quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And the forum is in honor of John Blassingame, who wrote um, Slave Community, Black New Orleans, as well as um, is the editor of Slave Testimony. Um, and actually, Life Code is doing, um, in cahoots with um, scholars from around many different places, is doing work to try and um, create digital um, um, projects around um, John Blassingame's work, starting with Black New Orleans. Um, so I say Black New Orleans is the center of the world uh, because so much of how we understand uh, the founding of the U.S., uh, the founding of the Atlantic world more broadly, um, and the uh, formation of African-American culture. You know, like people like to situate jazz as um, New Orleans is the birthplace of jazz. And there's actually a lot of debate about that. But I think there are ways that to think about like what, um, if there is a space to which um, uh, Black American uh cultural formations can can claim as like having a genesis. Um, New Orleans is certainly one of those places, um, one of the, the top three places. Um, uh, Black New Orleans um, it refracts the tensions um, within thinking about broader American life. Uh, so what, you know, what I called earlier um, profound contradictions are only contradictions if our orientation of American history is through British mainland North America. Um, the contradictions of, it isn't necessarily actually a contradiction um, to have a, uh, a free population of color alongside a slaveholding population for reasons that I lay out in the book. Um, it isn't exactly uh, a contradiction to have a um, a coastal um, town port um, outpost that is connected to the Caribbean. That actually was fairly normal as far as coastal outposts um, in uh, along the um, along the Atlantic seaboard. Um, it, uh, it, the way that New Orleans it becomes this iconic um, and critical uh, slave market. Um, the uh, the role that uh, New Orleans plays in um, in the Civil War is like one of the first sort of Union outposts of the South. Uh, the role that uh, slave uh, revolts play in shifting the terrain of of, of possibility um, uh, for enslaved people, as well as you know slaveholders imagining what freedom is for Black people. Um, you've got everything from um, the uh, uh, slave revolts that happened around the Natchez War all the way up through 1811, the largest, actually, slave revolt that happens on U.S. soil, the, um, the uh, uh, 
uh, Charles Delon, um, mm-hmm. uh, organized, um, insurrection, the March on New Orleans that recently had a reenactment by Dred Scott. So there are, um, and that's just during the slaveholding era. <laughs> right. Then you get into like after and you see all these ways that, um, New Orleans and black New Orleans become, um, refract, um, relationships with Latin America, relationships with, um, thinking of, of, of the Banana Republic, Panama, Honduras, um, relationships, um, with, um, Northern capitalists who, um, take opportunities to, uh, exploit, um, the oil industry off the coast, um, the environmental, um, and climate, um, exploitation, that has happened um, along things like cancer, what's now called cancer, what, what organizers call cancer alley um, with the Formosa plant. Like all of these are just um, are windows actually into the, um, the structural problems, issues, tensions um, and violences that are happening elsewhere in the U.S., elsewhere in the world. And so if we actually, you know, reoriented ourselves to think about, wow, you know, what is ha- what is happening with Black New Orleans? What's happening with Black New Orleans today? We actually begin to see the ways that um, what's happening in New Orleans is a snapshot of what um, is happening in other places. It's also the canary in the coal mine of what will happen, even if it is not happening yet. Um, this is uh, this week, I believe, August 29th is the anniversary, 15 year anniversary of the mm. um, uh, of Hurricane Katrina making landfall. Um, and we're still grappling with, as a nation, the ramifications of that. And the city is still grappling with the ramifications of divestment in public housing, divestment in Black communities, divestment in um, of resources to cultural producers and cultural bearers. Uh, and uh, and also organizing against you know for resources and against that kind of um, exploitation and so um, and so yeah so Black New Orleans Black New Orleans gives us a lot a lot more than you know I love jazz and I think jazz is important um, and is part of the story but it gives us a lot more than jazz it gives us actually a Black politics for reimagining um, freedom not just in the U S or not just in a national way but in a um, in a climate, in a um, not climate wide, a species wide, um, in a species wide framework, actually. Mm. And this actually is a that 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 previous answer is a great primer for our final question. What world are you fighting to create, Dr. Johnson? So, <laughs> what world? I want us all to be free. <laughs> That's all I want. So. Um, <laughs> And it seems so simple. Um, and it's not, of course, because, you know, like we're writing books about like freedom and its meaning and, and how to expand it and how to challenge it and and deepen it and everything. Um, so for this, I'm going to think about um, um, Clyde Woods. He has a quote in a in an essay that I love to quote all the time um, about Katrina and its impact and, and blues epistemology, which is the framework that he created to help us think about basically what does it mean to think think with freedom to think with um you know defiance and pleasure and resistance and and living um even in the midst of 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 profound um anti-blackness um and he says um to understand the region the region of the gulf coast the reader will have to explore the subterranean caverns that shelter the wellsprings of dreams during the seasons when hope can't be found um and so what the world that I'm hoping to create, fighting to create, is a world where um, where we can always find 
um, that hope that we can always find those dreams, um, even when we have to be underground. Um, and a world in which at some point, maybe that underground um, won't actually be necessary, uh, that we can sort of live out those, those dreams out here in, um, in, the, in the light at some point. So, yeah. There it is. There it is. Well, my goodness, this is the longest interview of my entire <laughs> podcasting career. And let me tell you, I loved love, right? Because we're still in it. Every single minute second, millisecond, however many seconds I my mind can't even my mind can't even reach the, the 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 amount of pleasure I have from this interview. And folks, this is none other than Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson, assistant professor in the Department of History at Johns Hopkins University. And she's been on to discuss her blockbuster first book. It's going down. It's ready to go. Ready to go to your. To, ready to go to your house for you to read in a couple days. This is gonna take you a while because there's a lot in there, y'all. And that book that I'm hyping up, like I'm Flavor Flav, Kirk Franklin of the Academy. That book is Wicked Flesh: Black Women, Intimacy, and Freedom in the Atlantic World, published by our friends at the University of Pennsylvania Press. And Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule as the semester is beginning to discuss with me your amazing book. Thank you so much for having me. This is a wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. For sure. And so thank y'all audience for joining us today on New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast to receive the channel's interviews to your mobile devices. Then, if you are so inclined, rate and review New Books in African American Studies wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Over and out.